Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This is the last podcast of 2018. John Eldridge of the Ministry of Ransomed Heart talked with me recently about making the coming year a year to experience God's restoration. You'll be hearing from that conversation. Then it's Montgomery, Alabama pediatrician Den Trumbull, formerly the president of the American College of Pediatricians. He spoke with me about his book, which examines some basic principles of parenting. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, he's an attorney who has recently authored a book on Christian apologetics. His name is Daniel Buttafuoco. He shared with me about considering evidence regarding the truth of the scriptures. Plus, Rachel Alexander of The Stream brought attention to a curriculum that is being used in a Phoenix private school that promotes the acceptance of transgenderism to middle school children. Finally, it's Adam Holtz of Plugged In, an arm of focus on the family. In our overall discussion, he called attention to family-friendly films and theaters over the holidays and pointed out some movies that contain matters of concern to parents. You'll be hearing about some of those elements coming up. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. I want to present some material from a recent conversation with author John Eldridge of the Ministry of Ransomed Heart. He shared about the concept and some of the content of his book, Restoration Year, a 365-day devotional. In the conversation, he related about his own personal journey of restoration and how people can experience it in their own lives. From that conversation, this is John Eldridge. I think that Isaiah 61... Jesus announced his ministry with that passage, and I just keep coming back to it because I love it so much. He says, I've come to heal your brokenness and set you free. I've come to heal that which is broken in your soul, and, and I want to set you genuinely free, right? And so God, God restores our bodies, but God is very deeply committed to restoring our souls, right? Psalm 23, restores my soul. And so I guess, Bob, I'd restore. I describe restoration as the process whereby the love of God and his life in us heals and transforms and makes holy the things in us that have been damaged over time. And as I understand it, at least part of the inspiration for this book actually came as the result of your own year of restoration. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I've been a therapist for more than 30 years, but a couple years ago, we went through a pretty hard, a pretty hard one ourselves. I lost my, my closest friend of 40 years to cancer. And within a few months of that, we actually lost our first grandchild. It was a year um, that my wife was in a, in a, a year of chronic pain, physical pain, and it was just loss and heartache, and it took a toll. And so the following year, I, I just said to Jesus towards the beginning of the year, I don't feel great. Mm. I love you. I believe you. I'm, you know, I'm working hard. I'm still in my vocation, but I can tell that my soul is not well. Would you lead me in a process? of restoration. And it was, it was a wonderful year. He, you know, through a series of prayer and some Sabbath and some different things he took me through. And I thought, golly, I would love this for other people. 
And so, you know, most devotionals are, um, they're structured to inspire and guide you through a year of faith. But what we tried to do with this one is make it a process of restoration of the scriptures, the prayers, the readings that take us through a journey where God can really do what he loves to do, and and that's restore our souls. Mm. And someone might think, wow, you know, John and Stacy and their family went through a really, really tough time, and that precipitated this year of restoration. And someone might say, well, you know, my my life's pretty good. Things are going along well. I'm pretty satisfied. I would contend, John, that unless someone in our audience has arrived spiritually, that there's always going to be, there, there's going to be room for improvement. There's going to be a need for restoration in some area, and I would dare say multiple areas. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I love Second Corinthians 3.18. Paul is describing the power of the gospel, the, the new covenant, in comparison to the old covenant. And he says, he says in that passage in 3.18, he says, but we all with unveiled faces reflect the glory of God with ever increasing glory. In other words, the, the, the whole life of the Christian, until we die or Christ returns, we are all being transformed more and more. And it's, it's what makes Christianity so deeply, deeply exciting is there's never a rival. There's always more of God to discover mm. and enjoy. There's more of our own gifting, calling place in the world that he wants to restore and empower. So I think you're right, Bob. I think, I think we're all on a, in a process. And yes, some of your listeners are in places of deep trauma, and they're very mm -hmm. aware that they need restoration. Others, life is going well, and I join you in praising God for that, friends. But you know that God has more for you. Let's chase the more. John Eldridge here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website ransomedheart.com. Next up, it's Den Trumbull, a pediatrician in Montgomery, Alabama, who has served as president of the American College of Pediatricians, has been a guest on Family Life Today, and has been a consultant for Focus on the Family. He discussed some of the topics and principles which he covers in his book, Loving by Leading, A Parent's Guide to Raising Healthy and Responsible Children. From that conversation, this is Den Trumbull. Isn't it obvious that we should lead? Of course we should lead. We know that. Um, but I would suggest that even in infancy, we start out with that as our objective. But And, and, and we as parents, my wife and I were guilty of this early on too, when resistance arises or conflict arises with the child, when we lead them in one direction that we know is best for them, but they don't want to go in that direction and protest, we tend to back down, concede, and kind of seek the path of harmony, even when we know it's not the best direction to go. And this can start early on, and it can continue later on. The problem, however, is it is a short-term solution that leads eventually to a series of long-term problems and I think that put a smile on many parents faces because they we all are guilty of that and basically it's called inconsistency and inconsistency from us eventually leads to 
confusion in the child and in the long run, I think even insecurity. So leading can be um, found in the areas of teaching a child to sleep well, teaching a child to eat well, teaching a child proper behavior, and eventually teaching a child, uh, you're sharing with your child your convictions and teaching them the importance of having convictions, which we as Christians know comes from Scripture, from the, from the Bible. When we hear the term discipline, I think most people immediately think of correction, um, of confrontation. But I would suggest that the root word of discipline means to guide a child. It means training. And um, through the years, <clears throat> I've kind of concluded that it consists of three components. One is instruction, the other is affirmation, and the other is correction in that order. So even with a toddler, the toddler needs to have clear understanding of what's expected of her. If not, then you, you, we, we as parents can't expect her to behave, so to speak, or have proper behavior. So um, proper instruction, it needs to uh, flow from a genuine heart. Um, it needs to not simply be self-serving for the parent. Hey, I want good behavior, so there, therefore here's how I want you to behave to make me look better in public. But it needs to be for the child's uh, own, own good. Um, and let me, let me just say this. Even before instruction, the, the foundation of discipline has to rest upon relationship. Relationship. You know, rules without a relationship lead to rebellion. And that's a, a you may have heard that statement before, but it really mm -hmm. is true. Uh, we have to develop a loving relationship with our children. That comes through display of love and conversation and teaching them that it's their best interest that we have in mind. Um, so then we have instruction, and then we have affirmation. And I would kind of sum this up by a term that's uh, coined by a psychologist several years ago. We need to catch them being good, catch them being good. We need to, the, the busyness of life can cause us to focus only on the misbehavior, but we need to focus also on the proper behavior and praise them for being a big boy or a big girl, for doing the right thing, for being generous with their friends and with their siblings, um, for being respectful toward us, uh, for being kind. We, we need to catch them being good. So we're building them up for their own good. And then finally is correction. And correction is very important. It's more physical early on in the toddler stage and the crawler stage where we pick them up and move them away from items we distract. Um, then into the second year, it would be time out. And when milder measures fail, it would be spanking. Um, but then in later years, it's more reasoning uh, for the school ager, privilege removal, understanding the consequences of their uh, misbehavior, uh, the consequences that it has upon others. And then as, as teenagers teaching the value of convictions and why we behave the way we behave. So that would be how correction would flow. And I think those three components resting on the foundation of relationship is what would sum up the term and the process of discipline. Dan Trumbull here on The Intersection. The book's website is lovingbyleading.com. 
His site is goodparent.org. This is the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. At that homepage, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more at faithradio.org. Also through the Meeting House homepage, you can find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter at Access the Meeting House Facebook page, and there is a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Attorney, author, and Christian apologist Daniel Buttafuoco spoke with me recently and offered insight into evidence concerning the reliability of the scriptures. The topic of his book, Considered the Evidence, a trial lawyer examines eyewitness testimony in defense of the reliability of the New Testament. From that conversation, this is Daniel Buttafuoco. Well, first of all, the Bible very much reads like an eyewitness account, and by that alone, it's distinguished from every other so-called holy book or so-called scripture from other religions. If you read some of the scriptures of other religions, they, they really read like fantastic accounts. They don't read like, like, uh, like something really happening. Like for example, when you read the book of Acts, you see that Luke is part of the narrative. You know, he talks about, we went here and then we went there and then this happened. And then we caught up with them in such and such a city when he's not part of the adventure, he drops the we. And, you know, we hear the apostles talking and saying, you know, we're not followers of cleverly invented fables, Peter writes, but mm. we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In John, 1 John 1, 1, John, who is arguably Christ's best friend, knew Jesus better than anybody on earth. He said, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have handled, this we declare to you concerning the word of truth. And it says that over and over again. Peter talks constantly about being an eyewitness and seeing Christ during the transfiguration. He said, we heard the voice come from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so, and they all died for this testimony. That's the other thing. You know, they didn't just write it down and like, okay, we got a good story. Let's move on. Then they were, cruci- they were crucified upside down, boiled in oil, sword in half, whipped and beaten, and, 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 and the worst kind of cross-examination that you can imagine, and none of them recanted. Then, of course, you have James, the brother of Jesus, who initially thought that Jesus was out of his mind. It says it in the New Testament. It says, my, bro- my brother's lost it. You know, he's claiming to be God. He's doing all this stuff. You know, come on. They- he's beside himself. And later on, James, after Christ appears to him after he was resurrected, James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He went from being a good Jew to being a good Christian Jew, believing that Jesus was the Messiah, and then was martyred for that belief. You know, the, you know that kind of testimony you don't even get in a trial. I've won, I've won cases where I have one witness, two witnesses, and I've and I've had great success. The Bible is. Many, many witnesses. It's 27 books in the New Testament, 40 authors of the entire Bible written over 1,500 years. People talking about Jesus before he arrives, people talking about Jesus when he's there, and people talking about Jesus after he's gone, after he's ascended to the Father. And so we have so much material, and it all weaves together so nice. Plus, the Bible records negative information about people like Peter, about David, 
about Paul fighting, you know, uh, with Peter and, 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 and witnesses to the first resurrection being women. You'd never do that if you were going to fabricate a story because it was illegal for women to be witnesses. And so the Bible records the good, the bad, and the ugly, records Peter's denial of Jesus, doesn't sanitize anything. So from that, we can see it's clearly a, a historical document because it, it, it says the way it is, warts and all. And that's what I love about it. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how he worked through men to craft such a document, that's certainly compelling evidence, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you took 40 people today and you put them in a room, said, I want you to write a book, you know, there'd immediately <laughs> be fights and disagreements. And especially if you said, I want you to write a book about God, right? And, and yet, in the Bible, we have 40 people writing over 1,500 years, people who've had a close encounter with God, you know, a close encounter of the third kind, if you want to re- reference the old movie from the 70s. And, and they, they were up close and personal, you know, in a day when there were no iPhones, and, and, and there, were no, there were no computers, there were no uh, TVs or radios, so they were in the wilderness, they were praying, they heard from God, they witnessed miracles, right? And they were from many different walks of life. You have poets, priests, kings, shepherds, fishermen, uh, one doctor. I mean, it, it, it's just incredible, the different viewpoints, you know, really shows that, that God is no respecter of persons. You know, he sort of like weaves all of humanity into the story, and it's a historical, actual story, and they're all remarkably consistent. It's, it's incredible. Like, there's no, there's sl- slightly different viewpoints, but sort of just looking at it from a different angle, but no contradiction. So it's like a beautiful tapestry, and it is a portrait. It's a, it's a portrait of Christ, so, sort of like a mosaic. Everybody puts a piece in the puzzle. And I, I look at it like a mosaic or a jigsaw puzzle, and as every author adds a new piece, you, you get a picture. And the picture, when you're all said and done, is a picture of Christ. Jesus is the what the Bible's all about. Daniel Buttafuoco here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website, considerdtheevidencebook.com. Rachel Alexander, senior editor of The Stream website, joined me recently to discuss a gay-friendly, transgender-friendly curriculum that separates the concept of gender from biological sex, as well as promoting multiple genders other than male and female. This curriculum has been implemented at a Phoenix, Arizona private school. Here now is Rachel Alexander. It seems like it's so harmless because it just looks like a gingerbread man. But, you know, you look at it closely, and it's this little cartoonish figure that's supposed to represent all the different genders. And there's supposed to be this endless array of genders, and, and they're all displayed in this um, bulletin board within this school, which uh, is a middle school, and it has children as young as fifth grade in that middle school. Middle school. And as you said, you know, their minds are really open to development at this age. And so, you know, giving them information like this um, is going to be extremely influential. And this uh, bulletin board gets its information from this website called It's Pronounced Metrosexual.com. And it's got a curriculum on on the website that has all kinds of offensive information that parents aren't going to agree with for their children. And a lot of it is so adult-oriented that this isn't even, you know, materials geared for kids, like the old sex ed we used to, you know, hear about when we were kids, um, which was offensive enough. Um, this is, this is even goes a step further and has things and words I can't even say on air. And this is a curriculum that is tied into the bulletin board. The bulletin board has been 
posted, as you were sharing with me, there has been a removal of the the poster, but unfortunately, the kids have already been exposed to this. And if they go to this website, they will be greeted by all sorts of offensive material. Yeah, this bulletin board has been up for a year. Um, parents were not notified about it. Um, you know, one parent just found out on accident is what happened, and um, that parent, you know, did put up a big protest to the school and went and met with um, the the principal and, you know, expressed their disapproval, and the school wouldn't agree to do anything, and then all of a sudden the bulletin board disappeared, and we don't know where it stands at this point. And what is highly disturbing, of course, I, I believe that Facebook right now identifies, what is it, uh, you know, 60-something different genders. I know that's a, quite a contrast from the Bible, which actually identifies two. And there are all sorts of different, as you put it in this article at the stream, possibilities with respect to gender. And they have have basically said that gender, gender identity is something that is different than the biological sex. I guess by doing that, they, they get away with, with actually teaching this type of material. Yeah, that's how they're doing it. It's called gender um, identity. And that, that phrase is nowhere in any of this curriculum. And I think they do it deliberately to hide it. Um, because they don't want people to know what their real agenda is, and they've got this harmless-sounding um, name for the cur- curriculum. Um, they've just totally disguised it to make it seem like it's something friendly and, and great for kids, and it's got this cute gingerbread man, and um, it's. It, and I think that's the reason they were able to keep it secret from parents so long, because it's so well-disguised. Also, you've got the promotion of the concept of gender Fluidity, and this is something that we're hearing more and more about as well. As I understand it, there's also the promotion of that concept in this curriculum. Oh yeah, that's included one of the one of the genders or something, and um, they even have two gender counselors at the school. I mean, that is how much they are promoting it. And what's so sad about it is, is you know, there's no. Um, laws or rules or restrictions or anything on them doing this because it's a private school. So even though Arizona's got some strict laws regarding public schools, um, you know, putting this onto our children, uh, they, they don't apply to the school. And also the curriculum, and, and this is where the Christian audience, in addition to all of this other material, can especially be concerned, is the way that those that disagree with the particular agenda are labeled. So comment on that, if you would. Oh, yeah. Um, they call them oppressive. And, um, and then they've also got related to that um, an article entitled 30-plus Examples of Christian Privilege. So they're, they're taking a very hostile view toward Christians and people who disagree with their agenda. Rachel Alexander here on The Intersection. Learn more at thestream.org. That's where you can find that article. 
Well, finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's managing copy editor for Plugged In, an arm of focus on the family, Adam Holtz. In our overall conversation, he discussed movies in the theaters during the Christmas holiday, examining their family friendliness or lack thereof. Here now is some conversation material pointing out some matters of concern to parents. This is Adam Holtz. Aqua Man. So good holiday fare or not? How about maybe? Maybe. I'm going to give it a definite maybe. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is a PG-13 superhero movie, and it is pretty similar and pretty typical of what we're seeing in that genre these days. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the story in a second, but I think from a content perspective, this is a movie that's pretty violent. Now, it's not gory, it's not graphic, but... There's a lot of combat, and unlike some superhero movies, there are quite a few death scenes. And so I think the violence here is probably the biggest issue that parents are going to want to be aware of. Uh, And there's not, you know, a a bombardment of profanity, but there are enough bad words in the script here that parents will want to check out our PluggedIn.com review to make sure, you know, they know what they're getting into Um, And so I think, you know, with those caveats in mind, uh, this is a pretty fun, wide-ranging movie. The story revolves around Arthur Curry, who is half Atlantean, half human, and and there's a, a battle for the throne of Atlantis, and the guy who ends up kind of on the throne wants to invade the world and and you know take out all of the humans on land and aquaman sort of serves double duty as the guy underwater and the guy outside of the water who's standing against that so that's the the overarching storyline with this one um again a movie that's getting pretty mixed reviews in uh, the mainstream media and it's one that i think a lot of great themes uh just about uh courage and about being a hero and about doing your duty but one that certainly is PG-13 for a reason. You've got one of those Transformers characters named Bumblebee. They claim it's the perfect holiday movie. I will What's claim it is, it is a better holiday movie than we have seen from the Transformers series. Uh, it's not perfect. Again, we have uh, a fair bit of profanity, and we have quite a bit of of rock'em, sock'em, robot kinds of violence, if you will. But I will say that compared to most of the recent entries in this franchise, they've really dialed down the camera staring at female bodies, which if you know anything about the last several, or actually really the whole franchise has, uh, has done a lot of ogling of the camera with women. There's none of that here. And there's actually, there's less profanity. There's still a few uh, that that parents will want to check out on our website. But uh, relative to where the franchise has been, this is a step in the right direction. And I think that um, relative to maybe Mary Poppins or, uh, you know, Ralph Breaks the Internet or something like that, there are still a lot more things to wrestle with here. This is, we're still talking about a PG-13 movie action flick at this point. Mortal Engines is set in about the year 3100. There has been some unspecified apocalypse in the past that has destabilized the Earth, and the Earth is off its axis, and what that means is there are lots of earthquakes, and humanity's best defense, instead of creating cities that are are, uh, what we think of as cities, uh, not being mobile, They've packed up all the world's biggest cities, and they have put them on 
big uh, treads, almost like you see at NASA carrying the space shuttle or rockets or that sort of thing. So these cities rove around, and the problem is the cities constantly need more fuel, and so the big cities end up gobbling up the little cities. It has a little bit of a Mad Max fuel fight feel to it in that respect. Uh, and so it is the story uh, really of, of a young woman uh, who is in the midst of this world, and she is trying to uh, avenge the loss <clears throat> of her of her parents, and and she gets wrapped up in this 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 mortal engine conflict. And so, in some ways, it is a massive, huge, uh, epic, big screen kind of special effects bonanza. And in other ways, you know, we have a a teen who suffered a loss that is, is, you know, really trying to work that out and, and solve her own problems. And so at this point, I feel like we've seen so much dystopian stuff that they all sort of start to blend together. Um, this is a movie that has plenty of violence, not as much profanity as we sometimes see in these kinds of films. So from a, a content perspective, I would say this is actually one of the better ones. But from a story perspective, the story is just, so crazy and hard to follow that it hasn't gotten good reviews. Adam Holtz here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website pluggedin.com. Well, we're nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast. Again, the final podcast of 2018. Thanks for joining me. You can learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. At the homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection podcast. And you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The current and previous editions of the Intersection podcast can be found at that website, and you can find the podcast through the Faith Radio app. Plus, through that homepage, you can see two blogs. One is the three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info or go to faithradio.org. In the programming section, you'll find a link to The Meeting House homepage. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.